Part One, Chapter One of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Thomas. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part One, Chapter One A Slice of Infinity. Really, as I sit here in this quiet study and glance round at the books upon the shelves, I can scarcely refrain from laughing at the fun we have had together, and to think of the way in which they came into my possession. It seems like a fairy story, or a chapter from romance. If a man wants to spend an hour or so as delightfully as it is possible to spend it, let him invite to his fireside some old and valued friend, the companion of many a frolic, and the sharer of many a sorrow let him seat his old comrade in the place of honour on the opposite side of the hearth and then let them talk do you remember tom the way we met for the first time my word i do shall i ever forget it and tom slaps his knee at the memory of it and they enjoy a long and hearty laugh together it is not that the circumstances under which they met were so ludicrous or dramatic it is that they were so commonplace it seems on looking back the oddest chance in the world that first brought them together the merest whim of chance the veriest freak of circumstance and yet how all life has taken its colour and drawn its enrichment from that casual meeting they happened to enter the same compartment of a railway train or they sat next to each other on the tram-car or they walked home together from a political meeting or they caught each other admiring the same rose at a flower-show neither sought the other neither felt the slightest desire for the other neither knew until that moment of the existence of the other and yet there it is they met and out of that apparently accidental meeting there has sprung up a friendship that many changes cannot change and a love that many waters cannot quench either would cross all the continents and oceans of the world to-day to find the other but as they remember how they met for the first time it seems too queer to be credible and they lie back in their easy-chairs and laugh again that is why i laugh at my books some day i intend to draw up a list of them and divide them into classes in one class i shall put the books that i bought once upon a time because i was given to understand that they were the right sort of books to have everybody else had them and my shelves would therefore be scarcely decent without them i purchased them accordingly and they have stood on the shelves there ever since as far as i know they have done nobody the slightest harm in all their long untroubled lives indeed they have imparted such an air of gravity and such an odour of sanctity to the establishment as must have had a steadying effect on their less sombre companions but it is not at these formidable volumes that i am laughing i would not dare i glance at them with reverential awe and am more than half afraid of them then again there are other books that i bought because i felt that i needed them and so I did, more than perhaps I guessed when I bore them proudly home. Glorious times I have had with them. I look up at them gratefully and lovingly. It is not at these that I am laughing. But there are others, old and trusted friends, that came into my life in the oddest possible way. I do not mean that I stole them. I mean rather that they stole me. They seemed to pounce out at me, and before I knew what had happened, I belonged to them. I certainly did not seek them in some cases i never heard of their existence until after they became my own they have since proved invaluable to me and i can scarcely review our long companionship without emotion and yet when i glance up at them 
and remember the whimsical way in which we met for the first time, I can scarce restrain my laughter. It was like this. Years ago, I went to an auction sale. A library was being submitted to the hammer. The books were all tied up in lots. The work had evidently been done by somebody who knew as much about books as a Hottentot knows about icebergs. John Bunyan was tied tightly to Nat Gould, and Thomas Carlyle was firmly fastened to Charles Garvis. I looked round, took a note of the numbers of those lots that contained books that I wanted, and waited for the auctioneer to get to business. In due time, I became the purchaser of half a dozen lots. I had bought six books that I wanted, and thirty that I didn't. Now the question arose, what shall I do with these thirty waifs and strays? I glanced over them and took pity on them. Many of them dealt with matters in which I had never taken the slightest interest, but were they to blame for that, or was I? I saw at once that the fault was entirely mine, and that these unoffending volumes had absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. I vowed that I would read the lot, and I did. From one or two of them I derived, as far as I know, no profit at all, but these were the exceptions. Some of these volumes have been the delight of my life during all the days of my pilgrimage, and as I look tenderly up at them, as they stand in their very familiar places before me, I salute them as the two old comrades saluted each other across the hearthstone. But I cannot help laughing at the odd manner of our first acquaintance. It was thus that I learned one of the most valuable lessons that experience ever taught me. It is sometimes a fine thing to sample infinity. When I was a small boy, I dreaded the policeman. When I grew older, I feared the bookseller. And as the years go by, I find that my dread of the policeman has quite evaporated, but my fear of the bookseller grows upon me. I had an idea as a boy that one day a policeman, mistaking my identity, would snatch me up and hurl me into some horrid little dungeon where I might languish for many a long day. But since I have grown up, I have discovered that it is only the bookseller who does that sort of thing and in his case he does it deliberately and of malice aforethought. It is no case of mistaken identity. He knows who you are, and he knows you are innocent, but he has his dungeon ready. The bookseller is a very dangerous person, and every member of the community should guard against his blandishments. It is not that he will sell you too many books. He will probably not sell you half as many as are good for you, but he will sell you the wrong books. He will sell you the books you least need, and keep on his own shelves the intellectual pabulum for which your soul is starving, and all with a view to getting you at last into his wretched little dungeon. See how he goes about it? A friend of yours goes to the West Indies. You suddenly wake up to the fact that you know very little about that wonderful region. You go to your bookseller and ask for the latest reliable work on the West Indies. You buy it, and he, rascal, takes a mental note of the fact. Next time you walk into the shop, he is at you like a flash. Good afternoon, sir. You are especially interested, I know, in the West Indies. We have a very fine thing coming out now in monthly parts. And so on. His attribution to you of special interest in the West Indies is no empty flattery. The book you bought on your first visit has charmed you, and you are most deeply and sincerely interested in those fascinating islands. You order the monthly parts, and the interest deepens. The bookseller does the thing so slyly that you do not notice that he is boxing you up in the West Indies. He is doing in sober fact what the policeman did in childish imagination. He is driving us into a blind alley, 
and unless we are very careful, he will have us cribbed, cabined, and confined before we know where we are. It was my experience in the auction room that saved me. When I had read all those books which I never should have bought if I could have helped it, I discovered the folly of buying books that interest you. If a book appeals to me at first sight, it is probably because I know a good deal about the subject with which it deals. But as against that, see how many subjects there are of which I know nothing at all. And just look at all those books that have no attraction for me. And tell me this, why do they not appeal to me? Only one answer is possible. They do not appeal to me because I am so grossly, woefully, culpably ignorant of the subjects whereof they treat. If, therefore, my bookseller approaches me with a nice new book under his arm, and observes coaxingly that he knows I am interested in history, I always ask him to be good enough to show me the latest work on psychology. If he reminds me of my fondness for astronomy, I ask him for a handbook of botany. If he refers to my predilection for agriculture, I inquire if there is anything new in the way of poetry. And if he politely refers to my weakness for the West Indies, I ask him to bring me something dealing with Lapland. The bookseller must be circumvented, defeated, and crushed at any cost. He is too clever at trapping us in his narrow little cell. If a man wants to feel that the world is wide and a good place to live in, he must be forever and ever sampling infinity. He must shun the books that he dearly wants to buy, and buy the books he would do anything to shun. Yes, I bought thirty-six books that day in the auction room, six that I wanted, and thirty that I didn't and some of those thirty volumes have been the charmers of my solitude and the classics of my soul ever since. I do not advise any man to rush off to the nearest auction mart and repeat my experiment. We must not gamble with life. Infinity must be sampled intelligently. But if a man is to keep himself alive in a world like this, infinity must be sampled. Like a dog on a country road, I must poke into as many holes as I can. If I am naturally fond of music, I had better study mining. If I love painting, I shall be wise to go in for gardening. If I glory in the seaside, I must make a point of climbing mountains and scouring the bush. If I am attached to the things just under my nose, I must be careful to read books dealing with distant lands. If I am deeply interested in contemporary affairs, I must at once read the records of the days of long ago and explore the annals of the splendid past. I must be faithful to old friends, but I must get to know new people, and to know them well. If I hold to one opinion, I must studiously cultivate the acquaintance of men who hold the opposite view, and investigate the hidden recesses of their minds with scientific and painstaking diligence. Above all, must I be constantly sampling infinity in matters of faith. If I find that the epistles are gaining a commanding influence upon my mind, I must at once set out to explore the prophets. If I find some special phrase of truth powerfully attracting me, I must, without shunning it, pay increasing attention to all other aspects. The Lord has yet more truth to break out from his word, said John Robinson, and I must try to find it. Mr. Goodman is a splendid fellow, but he fell in love with one lonely little truth one day, and now he never thinks or reads or preaches of any other. It would be his salvation, and the salvation of his people, if he would set out to climb the peaks that have no attraction for him. He would find, when he stood on their sunlit summits, that they, too, are part of God's great world. He would have the time of his life if he would only commence to sample infinity. 
his people are accustomed to seeing him now and again in a new suit of clothes if he begins today to sample infinity they will next week experience a fresh sensation they will see the same suit of clothes with a new man inside it end of part one chapter one